Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 31, verses 1 through 5. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, or consult the Lord. And yet he's wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus says the Lord to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Please be seated. Well, Rebecca and I and the kids got to go to California for Thanksgiving. That's where I'm from. And it was a total blast. And uh, we uh, got to go to uh, the beach in November, not to brag or anything, uh, and actually see uh, dolphins playing in the waves. I highly recommend it if you can do it. Uh, it was really, really cool. But the other fun thing we did while we were in California, we hadn't done this in a while, was we went to the movie theater to see a movie. And we went to go see Encanto. It's a new uh, Disney movie. I don't know if you've seen advertisements for it. Uh, it'll probably be on Disney Plus in like two days because that's what they do now. But it was really fun to see it in theaters together. Great music in this movie. And there was this one song that I still cannot get out of my head uh, since that trip. It's called Surface Pressure. And it's really about the, the, the weight of life's expectations on us to, to perform and to be productive or to never falter or show weakness, to keep getting up day in and day out and to keep fighting. So I, I want you to just listen to some of these words. It's, it's sung by one of the main characters, uh, Sisters. So that, that's part of why the word sister is in here. So give it to your sister, it doesn't hurt. See if she can handle every family burden. Watch as she buckles and bends, but never breaks. No mistakes. Give it to your sister and never wonder if the same pressure would have pulled you under. Who am I if I don't have what it takes? No cracks, no breaks, no mistakes, no pressure. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like this in a movie, but I looked, uh, I looked over at my wife and she looked at me and we both nodded slowly like, yes. That is what life feels like sometimes. <laughs> Do you ever feel that? I think especially this time of year, it can be even worse. There, there's a lot to love about Christmas and Advent. It's a beautiful time of year in, in many, many ways. But there's also a lot of pressure. There's pressure to get your schoolwork done before the end of the semester. There's pressure to finish uh, that quarter strong before the end of the year. There's pressure to get the house ready and the gifts purchased to meet every conceivable family member's expectations. And that's just the holiday stuff. That's not even to mention 
just the normal life pressure we face day in and day out that, that sometimes feels like a war that never ends. It's a battle that you awaken to every morning. The battle with your to-do list or that your ever-shrinking calendar or your daily fears and anxieties, the obstacles that we don't anticipate, the relationships and the people that we cannot control. Oh, and you know, what's for dinner tonight, right? It's, it's relentless. <laughs> it's relentless. Thank you for listening. I needed to get all that off my chest. That was good. So, so we're in a sermon series uh, this Advent on the names of God. So how does the Bible describe God? Uh, what are names that we find there? How do they find their fulfillment in Jesus, the Son given at Christmas, who has come and will come again? And what does that mean for our lives today? So last week, if you were here, Brent uh, talked about God the Most High as one of the names. And today, we're looking at another name. It's often translated the Lord of Hosts. Uh, it was in that Isaiah passage that we just read a few moments ago, Lord of Hosts. Now, that, that word host in English is funny. The name does not mean that God is the ultimate Julia child ready to host a Christmas dinner for all of you. Um, host here is an, is an old English word for armies. And in particular, in, in the Hebrew mindset, the idea here is armies of angels, like supernatural beings at God's disposal to, to do his will, to accomplish what needs done, to fight battles that need fighting. He's the Lord of hosts over all of it. And the reason this name is important, and, and we're going to actually look at a few passages in the Bible to make this point, but the reason this is important is when the Bible reminds us that the Lord is the Lord of hosts, it is a reminder to us that we do not fight alone. We are not alone in our battle. We are more as God's people than the sum of our visible parts. There is a supernatural power. There is an invisible general behind his people fighting on their behalf. And, and I need that reminder. That somebody fights for us. Someone fights for us. So let's jump in. Like I said, we're going to be in a couple of passages, but I want to start in Isaiah 31, uh, verse 1. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 31, starting in verse 1. Let me set this up a little bit. So Isaiah the prophet, speaking to God's people on God's behalf. That's, that's the role of a prophet. And Israel, when Isaiah shares these words, uh, Israel's in a very tough spot. They are surrounded by enemies. There is threat of war from every side. Remember, Israel's a tiny, tiny little country uh, on a very important uh, ancient road that ran north-south between several superpowers. You had Assyria at this time to the north and Egypt to the south. And the ancient world, not unlike today, was like a game of risk. You ever played risk? The goal is to conquer as many right, countries and lands as possible. It takes forever. For some of you, that's fun. For others, it's not. But anyway, that's the idea. So these kingdoms, they're looking at these smaller kingdoms, they're looking at little Israel like, hey, we want you to become a part of our kingdom. And there's two ways that can happen. One is you pay tribute to us. The other is we come and take what we want. You decide. That's the world into which Isaiah speaks these words. And so God's people are looking at Assyria who is amassing armies on their northern border and they're panicking. There's this scary stuff, this existential threat. And they're looking for an ally. 
They need someone big and strong to help them. They're looking for a human solution to this fight, this battle. And so they look south to Egypt. And they think if we can get Egypt on our side, then Assyria will think twice about attacking us. Not a bad strategy, but really bad theology. Remember, Egypt is the same country that enslaved God's people hundreds of years earlier. That's the whole Moses and Pharaoh, ten plagues stuff. And they are not trustworthy. They are an evil empire set on destruction, and they want nothing to do with the God of Israel. But for the small, small price of spiritual compromise, maybe Israel can survive. That's where Israel's leaders and her people are. They know they cannot win this fight on their own. So Isaiah says this. This is chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And then Isaiah gives a a picture, a metaphor, verse 4. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, and he, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise, so the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will save and rescue it. So I don't know if you watch the, those nature shows like National Geographic or whatever, and you've seen a lion like take down a wildebeest and start to eat it. It's not super appetizing. Um, but that's the imagery Isaiah gives here. It's, there's a lion over a fresh kill. And the shepherds, the Assyrians, come out to try to scare it away. And it's like the lion just looks up and his eyes say, you are next. God is the lion. He stares down human armies and swords and shields and chariots. He is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is reminding us that he sees our little battles and conflicts and struggles like an eagle sees a field mouse. He is beyond, he can see beyond the physical and the material, beyond human solutions and strategies. And he asks his people uniquely to trust him, that he can do it, even if it looks impossible to us. And one of the most important illustrations of this principle, which is all over Scripture, is in the story of David and Goliath. You remember uh, in that story that the giant Goliath, he was one of the Philistines, another enemy of God's people, just like the Assyrians. And he challenges any Israelite to fight him one-on-one as a champion. And he is massive, right? The, The Bible is clear on He's a big dude. And from a human perspective, no one in their right mind should challenge him. He is a professional killer, except little teenager David. And here's what David says to Goliath. Here's why I wanted us to think. This is 1 Samuel 17. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Notice David's logic here. He says to this monster of a man, he says to Goliath, you think that you're fighting me. (laughs) You come with swords and spears, but you have an enemy that is so much bigger than I am. You have defied the Lord of hosts, and there is no winning against him. 
This was not about David's skill or his strategy or his aim or his plan. David knew something. He knew someone. And that is what made him different from all the other of God's people that day. He knew someone fought for him. And that someone was the Lord of hosts. Someone fights for us. Do you know that? When, when you feel overwhelmed by your life, which you do, right? Don't, don't lie. You do. When it feels impossible, like nobody can make this okay. No one, I can't win this. Do you, do you know God's fighting for you? Do you feel the difference that that makes in your struggle? Someone fights for us too, even when we don't know it. I mean, it's one thing to trust God with our, our, our deepest struggles and battles and fights that we know about. But part of the promise here is that God is fighting on the behalf of his people in ways we, won't, we may never know about. Think of the ways he's protecting us now that we'll never know. The invisible wars around us. There's a lion protecting you, guiding you, reminding you that he's in control. And he is not surprised and that you can trust him. Okay, someone fights for us, but that's not all. Someone wins for us. That's the next thing that this name shows us, Lord of hosts. And we really see that in another part of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, uh, starting in verse 6. Now, just listen here. This is one of the most uh, famous and beautiful scriptures in all of the Bible, especially around this time of year. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a promised victory to end all wars. Notice that. There will be no end to justice and peace when God sends this king. That's Isaiah's point. But notice with me, who does all this? Who wins? Is it Israel? Is it you? Is it me? No. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not might do this, might not will consider this, not should do this, but will do this. It will happen because the Lord of hosts has said so. He will accomplish it. And his victory is our victory. God takes on our battles, the battle we cannot fight, the battles where we are outnumbered and outschemed and outgunned, and he fights for us. And he wins for us. He takes on the ultimate battle in our lives, our ultimate Goliath, our sin and death, the battle that no human being has ever won, and the proof is in the grave. To a man, no one has yet outlived death except for one, and Isaiah says here, the Lord of hosts will do it. How will he do it? How does this happen? Well, hundreds of years later, after this promise is given, on an ordinary night, a group of nobodies fighting off sleep because they're working the third shift see something. Luke 2, verse 8. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now these shepherds, they can hardly believe what they are hearing. They are hearing an echo of a promise from Isaiah long ago, a promise that they memorized, that they learned in Sunday school, but they probably never really thought would happen, certainly not to them. And certainly not this way. A baby in a manger, the Lord of hosts, Jesus, become human to defeat our real enemies. And notice this time, this is not Rome or Assyria or Babylon, but sin and death. Dying and rising again on our behalf, not because of our courage or our faithfulness or our striving or our fighting, but his. His victory is our victory. And even the shepherds wouldn't have believed this, even if the angels had come out and told them, but victory on a cross. Condemned as a criminal, an outcast, a reject, somebody wins for us that way. Somebody, think about this, somebody defeated your failures. Somebody silenced your sin. Somebody took your debt, your insurmountable debt, and paid it in blood. Someone interrupted that voice in your head that says to you over and over again, you can't do it, you're not going to make it, and no one's going to help you. And whispers, I will. Somebody looked straight in the eye at your death and said, no, not this one, this one's mine. In our darkest moments, do you know that if you are in Jesus, if you believe on him, you have already won the only battle that has ever truly mattered. He already did it. Your test, your battle, your war, it's already over. It's over. It was over on the morning of the third day when a stone rolled back 2,000 years ago. The zeal of the Lord has accomplished it. Someone wins for us. It's one thing to say these things, right? And it's another to believe them and then to practice them and to live them. It's great to remember this, this promise and to celebrate it and to sing it as we've done on this Sunday morning, but then Monday rolls around and it feels like that battle starts all over again. So I want us to practice something together while we're here. I want us to wait on the one who waits for us. And part of the beauty of this Advent season, this, this season where the church uh, waits for Christmas, is that we practice waiting. Think about how long it took God's people uh, to waiting from Isaiah 9 to Luke 2. Hundreds of years. And we're still waiting hundreds of years between the first coming of Jesus and his second Advent where he actually sets the the right, uh, sets to right the wrongs of the world forever. We're waiting. And we wait in a world that is not right. 
There's brokenness and pain. There's grief and loss. There's, there's broken marriages. There's, there's sickness. There's, there's bad jobs and financial stress and anxiety and depression and loneliness and violence and bullying. This is the room we're waiting in. It's like that. And each pain and failure and disobedience and disappointment is a visceral reminder that we need someone to fight for us. We cannot do it. We need the Lord of hosts. We need the lion who fears nothing and no one, who can do what we have not and cannot and won't ever be able to do. We need to wait on the one who fights for us. So here's what I want. I want you to take a minute. Think of the battle you're fighting. Maybe it's been on your mind this whole morning already. You already know what it is. Maybe you don't. So think of the part of your life where you're striving with everything you have. You're doing all you can and it's not working. There seems to be no way out and no way forward and you're losing hope. This could be a relationship, a conflict that just puts that pit in your stomach. It could be a problem at work, a project, a deadline that's keeping you up at night and all, it's, it's all your happiness and attention is wrapped up in it in destructive and anxious ways. It could be your body, your health, like you're struggling with something that threatens to rob you of joy in the moment. It could be your loneliness, especially this time of year, fighting again that voice that says, no one loves me, no one wants to be with me. It could be your bank account, your grown children, your depression, your peers. Okay, I want you to I think of that battle now. Call it to mind. And if you can, I want you to think about it until you feel it in your body. Your heart race, your stomach turn, your palms sweat, that's when you know you found it. Okay? Take a minute and think about that. When you have it, I want you to clench your fists. As a symbol, man, you are holding on to this thing. You are fighting for dear life, and it is not going well. And now take a deep breath all the way to the bottom of your lungs and release it. And when you do, unclench your fists and put your palms up as a symbol that you give this battle to the Lord of hosts. This is his fight. Say to God, I'm waiting to receive the rest that only you can give. Lord of hosts, be with me. And I want us to do this this week, if you can. In those moments of battle, when Goliath is out there in your head and he is mocking the living God, he's saying there's nothing he can do for you and he doesn't like you anyway. When you're alone, you feel you're finished. And you're angry or you're scared or you're overwhelmed or you're despairing. Clench your fist, take a deep breath and give the battle back to the only one who can do something about it. The Lord of hosts fights for us. And he wins for us. And I want you to remember one more thing this week. As you decorate your house or as you go shopping, you're going to see some nativity scenes. And I want you to remember something when you see these. I want you to remember the hosts, the angels. 
We love to make them beautiful and friendly and nice and cute, and that's fine, like this. But remember that the angels are not beside baby Jesus because they find him adorable. They are not there for warm fuzzies. They are reporting for duty. Because hidden in that manger, wrapped in swaddling cloth, cold and naked and vulnerable to the world, is their commander-in-chief. And Caesar and Rome, and your stress and my problems and our doubts and our fears and our griefs and our struggles and death and the devil himself have nothing on him. And they know that. He's the Lord of hosts. And he will do it. And he proved it. He proved it with a body broken and bloodshed. As a part of our response this morning, I want us to receive communion together. To do this in remembrance of him. And as we prepare to do that, remember that this table is a place where we together lay down our burdens at Jesus' feet and receive his sacrifice, his victory. Even over our own sin and failures, we receive it on our behalf. This is the table where fears are stilled and striving cease. And if you're his, if this is your king, I'm going to pray here in just a minute. But after that, come, receive. There are stations all around the room. There's, there's four up here. There's a gluten-free station all the way to my extreme left. Come in groups, receive this together. And if you aren't yet uh, ready to, to gather in groups, we totally understand. There are two stations there in the back where you can uh, grab the elements yourself and take them at your seat. Take and eat Jesus' victory for you. If you're not his, if you're here and you do not yet know how you feel about Jesus, we're glad you're here. Take this time to reflect on what you've heard. And maybe even invite God, pray to him, to reveal himself in the battle you face in life right now. Let me pray as we prepare. Father, thank you for this promise that in Jesus you are ahead of us, you are behind us, you are beside us, fighting. Fighting the battles we cannot see, fighting the battles we cannot win. For your glory. Thank you as we come to the table of your son, we remember his victory on our behalf. And we give our battles to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please come.